Morning, everybody. It is great to be with you today. If you are visiting with us, a special welcome to you. My name is Nick. I'm the senior pastor here at Old North, and it's my great privilege to open the scriptures with you today. Let's pray, shall we, and ask for God's help as we turn our attention to the word. Please pray with me. Lord God, we worship you. We proclaim that Jesus is the Lord of all, even the Lord of this country, even the Lord over this church, and even the Lord over our lives. And so we pray that as we turn our attention to the scriptures this morning, that you would help us. Lord, help us to bend our wills to him. By the power of your spirit, Lord, would you change us and continue to change us more and more into his likeness, particularly with what that means for how we relate to each other in our families. God, we thank you for your scriptures, for the encouragements and for the challenges that are found there. But more importantly than that, we thank you that you speak to us clearly through it. And so we pray, speak clearly now. In Jesus' name, amen. Family. I don't know about you, but for me, there are few things in this life that are more difficult and more joy-inducing or precious than family. We have a lot of examples of healthy marriages and parenting and children and healthy families throughout history. And we have a lot of examples through history and in our own personal experience of not-so-healthy families. When Winston Churchill was the Prime Minister of England, it was widely regarded that his marriage was considered to be one of the best examples in all of England of true loyalty and love. Often when he gave a speech in the House of Commons, he would wait until his wife was present and seated, until she gave him a sign of her support, until he would begin his speech. And one time a reporter asked Mr. Churchill if he had life to do all over again. If he could live again, what would he want to be? And with a twinkle in his eye, Churchill replied, Mrs. Churchill's next husband. Conversely, the speaker at a woman's club was lecturing on marriage, and she asked the audience of women how many of them wanted to mother their husbands. And without hesitation, one woman's hand shot up from the way back. And, he, and she asked her, do you desire to mother your husband? Mother? The woman replied, I thought you said smother. <laughs> Family. There are few things more difficult And few things more rewarding than our families. And so when we come to a text in the Bible in which this most painful, yes, most precious relationships are addressed, we sit up and we pay attention, don't we? And so I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to Colossians chapter 3. And today we address family. Now, as you're turning there, it's on page 984 of that pew Bible in front of you, let me set the stage for you. Over the past number of weeks, we've been on a journey together, 
And if you're new this week, then you're stepping into the middle of this journey. But let me describe it for you. We've been considering how Jesus is supreme in all things and how we live our lives in him as a result of the fact that he is supreme. And what we've been seeing is this expression of supremacy in huge concepts that are getting ever more specific in their practicality and in their scope. So in the beginning of the book, we talked about how Jesus is supreme over the cosmos, the universe, nature, and all other spiritual beings. We explored then how Jesus is superior or supreme over other religious systems, particularly legalism. And then we talked about how in the totality of our lives, the lordship of Jesus is displayed in how we're changed, how our old selves and our old desires are put to death and we're born again, spiritually speaking, with new desires and abilities to follow him and to act differently than we did before. Then last week, we saw how our new life in Christ is demonstrated and how we grow spiritually and relationally with all these people around us in the family of God, the local church. And now, this week, we get even more specific as we look at how the lordship of Jesus is displayed on the ground in my family and in your family. And so with that, this journey of Jesus' supremacy, getting ever more specific, look with me at Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 18. This is what it says. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for his wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, Treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So how is the lordship of Jesus displayed in my family? It's interesting that in these most complex relationships that we have, the Apostle Paul cuts through a lot of the complexity and gives us just very direct, almost machine gun-like commands for issues that are common struggles for many of us. And before we break down the three types of relationships, let's just make a couple of general observations. Observation number one is that here we see in the ancient world these core relationships that make up the family unit. Husbands and wives, children and parents, and even slaves and masters. Now this morning, we're going to 
just touch on this piece of slaves and masters because there are some applicable points there. We'll talk a little bit about children and parents and we'll spend the back half of our time together talking about the most controversial of them, husbands and wives. Observation number two. The motivation for interacting in these ways in our families is a motivation to honor the Lord Jesus. And we see this multiple ways throughout the text. It's not just the arc of the book of Colossians, but even in this text. Look at it with me. If you look at verse 18, we see wives do this as it is fitting to the Lord. Verse 20 for children, this pleases the Lord. Verses 22 and 24 for slaves, fearing the Lord and you are serving the Lord. And chapter 4, verse 1 for masters, because you have a master in heaven. And so when we set up the message this morning and we ask the question, how is the lordship of Jesus displayed in my family? We see this is a thread that's woven throughout all of these different types of relationships. Honoring the Lord, fearing the Lord, serving the Lord again and again and again. Observation number three. Of great importance here in our understanding is the reality that the Apostle Paul recognizes the head of the household status to be that of the man But he gives voice, strength, care to the parties who are in the weaker position. And this is entirely countercultural. In the ancient world, in a male-dominated society, people did not care what slaves or children thought. And they didn't really care that much for their well-being either. The fact that he gives voice to children and slaves is significant. Likewise, women had a voice in the ancient world, but it was certainly in secondary nature to that of their husband. And so the fact that all parties of the family are addressed here is actually a way of elevating the status and showing preference to those in weaker position. But it's interesting to note that as he does that, he doesn't eliminate roles in the family. He doesn't eliminate the authority structure. Instead, he helps us to understand how the supremacy of Christ is important within those structures. And so here's the main idea. I want to give it to you right up front so you can see where we're going. In all of these three relationships, we see the main idea being loving leadership and healthy submission reflect the lordship of Jesus in my family. Loving leadership, healthy submission, these reflect the lordship of Christ in my family. So let's look at these relationships together. Let's start with the most obvious, maybe the most plain, and that is children and parents. You see in verse 20, children obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, there are a lot of kids in the room this morning, so kids, I want you to perk up and listen to me for just a minute. If you're coloring, you can resume shortly, but listen to Pastor Nick for a second. Kids, 
There are a lot of ways that you can please God in your life. But one of the most important ones is that you obey your parents. And I know it's hard. It's hard because you have your own desires. You have things that you want to do and places that you want to go and time that you want to spend doing certain fun things. But you know, kids, God has placed your parents in your life as a blessing to you to help you to succeed in this life. God's entrusted them with your care. And this is no small thing. Now, some of you older children or young adults might be thinking, I wonder if this still applies to me. Maybe you're 17, you're sitting up in the balcony, and you're saying, I'm not a child anymore. Does this still apply to me? And the hard reality is, yes. I think as long as you are living under the roof of your parents and you're financially dependent upon them, there's a moral obligation before God to obey them in certain ways. Now, uh, amen. And it, <laughs> we're coming to you in a second, Dad. Hang out. <laughs> now, I know obedience changes as you get older, but you need to understand something. Teenage kids, did you know that your parents actually have the same goal that you have? You have the goal of independence and freedom. They want that for you too. But they are tasked with the responsibility before God of guiding you into healthy expressions of independence and freedom. This is talked about all over in the Bible in a number of different ways. But perhaps a great summary of it is found in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Listen very carefully, kids, to these words. Hear, my son, and by inference, my daughter. Hear your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck picture is that the instructions of your parents will bring you success and bring you health and happiness. And so obey them. Parents and dad, particularly fathers, the power of your words over your children is more significant than you realize, regardless of their age. You ever notice the way a child's disposition changes when you encourage them, how they lighten up with the encouragement of their parents, particularly their fathers? Or how that same child can very quickly have a change in disposition and sulk when they are discouraged by their parents? Now, why does he single out dads here instead of both mother and father. I think for two reasons. One, because he's recognizing dad as the leader of his home, the one who sets the environment or the culture. But number two, because I think this is probably a temptation not to provoke your children. This is a temptation that dads struggle with more than moms. Let's just be honest. 
And the word very directly for you is do not provoke your kids lest they become discouraged or embittered. Instead, instead, lead your kids lovingly. Now, the second family relationship that he talks about here, in which loving leadership and healthy submission is expressed, is that of slaves and masters. Look with me at verses 22 and on. Now, when we hear this as a family relationship, we automatically sort of cock our head to the side and say, huh, I don't get it. Because it's easy for us to think that slavery in the New Testament world was, is the same as our conceptions of slavery in the American context. And in some cases this was true. There were some people who were forced into slavery. But there were also a lot of ways in which a person would sell himself into slavery. Poverty. And the idea of having consistent food and shelter was a reason why somebody would sell themselves into slavery. A debt that needed to be paid would make somebody consider selling themselves into slavery for a season of time until that debt was paid off. Or the desire to gain certain skills or access might only come through a route of slavery or what we might consider to be indentured servitude. And so... By God's grace, we don't have these types of slavery at least explicitly expressed in our culture today. So we have to be careful about how we apply this section. But I see two immediate applications that are pertinent to us. The biggest one is this. When he talks about slaves obeying their earthly masters and serving the Lord in their work, there is an implied dynamic underneath here that we see earlier in the book of Colossians. And that is that all people find equal value before God and they find freedom, true freedom, in the gospel that changes the nature of relationships between slaves and masters or even employees and employers. If you look back with me to Colossians 3.11, we see this. He says here, and this is in the new self, in Christ, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. So in the incredible freeing reality of the gospel is this, is that whoever you are, no matter what class of people you come from, no matter what your education is, no matter what your job is, no matter where your social status lies, before God, you are all of equal value. In the family of God, you are all of equal value. And in your earthly families, you are all of equal value. And so if you're here today at Old North and you come from a background that is embarrassing to you, you need to know you are most welcome here because the nature of God's grace in the gospel 
radically changes the way that we look and relate to one another. And this is a profound, defining reality of what it means to be a Christian and to be part of a Christian church. And because of this, because of this new idea of value, we work hard in the roles that God places us in, whether that's in our job or whether that's in our home. We work and we pursue excellence in our family because these are practical ways in which the gospel is displayed in our lives. And masters or managers, those who are the boss over other people, you likewise say, all people are of equal value before God and therefore I Recognize I have a master in heaven who is abundantly gracious and loving in his leadership of me. And so I am going to be gracious and loving in my leadership of the people who are in weaker position than I am. Loving leadership and healthy submission reflect the lordship of Jesus in my family. The third relationship in which we see loving leadership and healthy submission is addressed in the relationship between husbands and wives. Now, again, it's interesting to note, our marriage relationships are probably the most complex relationships in our lives. If you've been married for six days or 60 years, you know that to be true. And here... In this most intimate, most complex relationship, Paul does not give us a relational philosophy. He doesn't give us advice on conflict management. He doesn't help us to express our feelings better toward one another. He doesn't tell us to have a more, or doesn't show us how to have a more rewarding and intimate sexual relationship. And all of those things are important. But in this most complex relationship, he, chose, he chooses to give us really just two very straightforward commands. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And as I say that, and as we read that, the thing that immediately comes to our mind is the S word. Submission. Because there are a few words in our culture today that carry such negative connotation as the word submission. I actually had a friend say to me, Pastor, I think you should call in sick today. Because the new pastor standing up and talking about this might not bode well for you. So this word, submission, has so many misconceptions and so many misapplications attached to it. I think of the couple who recently attended the marriage seminar that was put on by one of those male demagogues who determined to show that the Bible teaches that the man is in charge of his family. The husband loved it. And the wife 
sat there under this terrible teaching on submission that turns women into doormats, and she fumed for hours while this was continuing to be taught. The man had never heard teaching like this before, and he drank it in hour after hour. And as they left the meeting that day, and they walked to the car, the man, fresh, drunk with power, says to his wife as they climb into the car, well, what did you think about that? <laughs> to which the wife said nothing. And so the husband replied, I thought that was fantastic. Didn't you? And she sat there in silence on their ride home. And as they got home, she followed him quietly into the house, and they went through the front door, and there in the foyer he said, Now wait just a minute. You stop and wait right there. I've been thinking an awful lot about what that fellow said tonight, and I want you to know that from now on, that's the way it's going to be. From now on, that's the way that this house is going to function. And at that, he did not see his wife for two weeks. And after two weeks in the hospital, he was able to just start to see her out of one eye. So what is this submission and love that Paul is talking about here. We don't like the idea of it, so we could try to ignore it. And we could even joke about it and say anything, anytime we talk about it, you know, somebody's going to get clobbered. We don't like the idea of it, culturally speaking, so we could try to explain it away, or we could say, yes, the Bible says hard things, even hard things to us, and so we could try to figure out what love and submission looks like in the context of Jesus' lordship in our marriage. For a wife to submit to her husband in this sense of the passage is for her to voluntarily place herself under the leadership of her husband. That's the nuance of submission. There's a difference between submission and subjugation. Subjugation is when someone is forced to follow the will of another person. But New Testament submission in this sense is a willful or voluntary following the leadership of another. Likewise, there's a difference between submission and obedience. You remember what he said to children and parents, children obey, obey your parents. He could have said, wives obey your husbands, but he didn't. He says, wives voluntarily yield to the leadership of your husband. And here again, we see the motivation for this is not some cultural reality of the ancient world. It's not some specific or unruly married couple in the church in Colossae. It's actually 
motivated by what is fitting to the Lord, verse 18. Now, as I speak to people about this, I understand a number of things. Number one, all of us come to the idea of our marriages with a variety of grids or filters, whether that's the observation of how our own parents functioned, marriages that we see as healthy and unhealthy, and they distort or enforce ideas about what love and submission look like in marriage. Some of us have been married for a long time and we're locked into a habit or a pattern of functioning. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. And as I ask women what their biggest obstacles to submitting to their husbands are, I regularly hear three. The first one is this. It's hard to submit to a husband who isn't willing to lead. And so we ask, men, are you leading? Another common objection is that if I subscribe to the idea of submission... I feel unequal, of less value, or somehow like a second-class citizen in my marriage. And number three, it's difficult to know that you aren't going to get your way, especially if your husband acts selfishly, like we all do at different times. Three common objections that we hear again and again. I'm going to address the second one first. We'll loop back around to the first and the third in just a moment. But the second one is really important for understanding this in our culture today. If I subscribe to the idea of submission, doesn't that mean I'm a second-class citizen in my marriage? I'm of less value. And so we ask the question, well, what gives someone their value? Because one of the biggest fallacies of our society today and this culture is that your role in your job, your role in contributing to your community, your role in your family is what ultimately conveys value. Now, this morning, as I look out at you and I'm beginning to know some of you, I'm seeing faces that I recognize. I'm making eye contact with hundreds of people and hearing in the back of my mind, okay, that person is a banker, that person is a teacher, that person is a stay-at-home mom. And if I were to call you up to the platform with me and we would line you up, none of us would ever say, I don't think, that the banker has more inherent value than the teacher does. Or that the teacher has more inherent value than the stay-at-home mom does. Or that the stay-at-home mom has more inherent value than the banker does. We would never describe our true worth, our true value in those types of ways. Because role does not equal value. As a Christian, fundamentally what gives someone value is that we are created by God and in his image. Now, if you remove God from the equation altogether, then you can start to see how people would say, well, the banker is worth more than the teacher. 
He contributes more economically in some way to society than X. Or the teacher's worth more than this person or whatever. But if God is in the equation, we know that fundamentally our value is found in that we are created by him and in his image. And so valuable are you that he sent his son in the greatest act of submission to suffer in your place to redeem you and bring you back into relationship with himself. And so to be in a submissive relationship in any type of environment does not mean that you're somehow second class or of less value. And in marriage especially. But rather that you are of equal value and different role. Your value is found in the one who created you. And as a Christian, your value is found in that he sees fit to call you a son or a daughter of God, a co-heir with Jesus, people of equal ontological value before him. Now this leads us to the command for men. Husbands are to love their wives and not to be harsh with them. Men, your call in leading your family is to be a loving and sacrificial leader. Again, he doesn't elaborate here on what that looks like. We see elsewhere in the Bible in Ephesians 5 that men are to mirror the relationship of Jesus to his church who loved them and sacrificed himself for them. Now, this type of sacrifice was not small in nature. It's not like Jesus just led his family by simply saying, well, we can watch what you want to watch tonight on TV. He died for them. That's the type of loving leadership that he showed. And as men, Christian men, start to get a vision of that, many of us are very rightfully terrified by that idea of leadership. And so I hear women complain about submission. I hear men complain about that type of leadership because... It's incredibly difficult in its scope. As you know, Amy and I have moved around over the last number of years. And between living in the United Kingdom and living in New England, we've lived in some pretty heavily feminist environments. And I can vividly remember conversations I've had about this topic with other Christians as we've opened the Bible together and as we've talked about what this could possibly mean for our relationships. One time, I remember sitting around a table with a mixed-gender group of people and the idea of loving leadership and healthy submission being sort of pushed back on me is almost just the ancient cultural reality. To which my response was this. I asked the women around the table a very simple question. What kind of husband would you like? Would you like the type of man who deeply cared about you? The type that thought about you constantly? The type that made an effort to communicate with you? The type of guy who was self-sacrificing that he would work hard to provide for you. He would, even, he would even do little things like 
get up early and scrape the snow off your car before he went to work on that day? Would you like the type of guy that looked out for your best interests? So much so that he didn't necessarily have to watch the Thursday night NFL game and the early Sunday afternoon game and the late afternoon Sunday game and the Sunday night game. And don't forget Monday night football. I mean, the NFL has done a very good job of trying to take over our existence. But during the time in his exceedingly busy schedule, he'd give up multiple of those time slots, even just to spend time with you. Does that sound like the type of guy you might like to marry? Oh, yes, they said. The type of guy that looks out for your best interests? Yes, they said. And would you like to follow that type of guy who's looking out for you and sacrificing for you and leading you? Oh, I would like to follow that type of guy, they say. And that is a picture of the loving leadership described in the New Testament and the type of submission that comes with that type of leadership. But here's the thing. You can't force this to work. If you are in a habit or a pattern of marriage, or if you are looking to get married, maybe you're not married yet, and women, you're saying, who are the types of guys that I would be willing to follow in this way? You can't force this to work. Wives, you can't force your husband to lead you like Jesus. Because the minute you say, you need to lead, lead like Jesus, you have backed him into a corner. Because even if he does start to lead, he's not doing it of his own volition. He's doing it because you've told him to. And that is not leadership. The desire to lovingly lead has to come from within him. And husbands, you need to recognize that you cannot force your wife to submit to you if this is going to work, the second that you demand her to submit, game over. Because there's a difference between submission and subjugation. The desire to voluntarily yield to your leadership needs to come from within her. So husbands, you need to think clearly about what your desires in leading your family are, if you have any. And wives, you need to think clearly about what your desires in following your husband are, if you have any. Because for both of you, husbands and wives, the biblical picture of loving leadership and healthy submission is one that is mysterious and profound in nature. God institutes marriage as a physical sign of the gospel. As Ephesians 5 tells us, husbands, you mirror Jesus in your sacrificial love. Wives, you mirror the church in your faithful following of him. But interesting to note that both here in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 5, that these things are not one contingent on the other. Husbands, you're not off the hook for loving leadership if your wife isn't submitting to you. 
You're still called to be faithful. And wives, you are not off the hook in your willful following, even if your husband isn't a loving leader. And we might say with the exception of maybe two things, certainly in cases of abuse and if your husband is leading you into something that is in contradiction to godliness. But the point is this. We so easily embrace these concepts until we disagree. But faithfulness, your faithfulness to Jesus in this way, is not contingent on the faithfulness of your spouse. So let me conclude this morning by reminding you, loving leadership and healthy submission reflect the lordship of Jesus in my family. It's said that Cyrus, the founder of the Persian Empire, once captured a prince and his family. And when they came before him, the monarch asked the prisoner, what will you give me if I release you? Half of my wealth, the prince replied. And if I release your children, the emperor asked, everything I have, the man said. And if I release your wife, the emperor asked. To which the prince replied, I will give you myself. So impressed was Cyrus that he let the entire family go. And as they arrived back at their home, the prince said to his wife, wasn't Cyrus a handsome man? And with a look of deep love for her husband, she said, I didn't notice. I could only keep my eyes on you, the one who was willing to give himself for me. Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize that your son Jesus is magnificent. He changes the ways that we relate to each other and even how we view the value of each other. And I'm conscious of the fact that as we talk about slaves and masters, that there are some among us here today who are in very difficult working relationships and need your help here to be faithful. As we talk about children and parents, there are some here in very difficult relationships, either with abusive parents or exceedingly rebellious children, and we need your help to be faithful. And there are certainly some here today with hurt and pain attached in their marriage relationships. And so, Lord, I pray that as we think about these very direct commands and what they mean for us, that you would cause within each of us to take that first step in humility, whether that's in humility of love or humility of submission. And that in doing so, Lord, you would find your people to be faithful, that you would continue to change us that you would continue to institute us godly character and that you would be pleased and that you would bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.